I want to back into back into my message here uh, this morning um, by first of all thanking uh, Peggy, who two weeks ago delivered an outstanding message on worship. Amen. And and Curtis DeYoung. Uh, last week for giving us that message. I asked him specifically to preach that sermon. I've never done that to a guest speaker before. But I said, here's a sermon I want you to preach. Are you willing to do that? Uh, You know, Curtis, I don't know if you know this or not, but he is one of the uh, leading spokespersons on a national level on the racial reconciliation issue. And it was really an honor to have him here. He was uh, really moved by the church, and uh, we're looking forward to having an ongoing relationship with him. But... uh, He spoke a little bit on the history of racism in America. And I bet that there were some here in this audience, because it happens every time we talk on this issue, and I totally understand and I've been there, who are maybe asking the question, why do we have to dig up old wounds? What is the big deal about this anyways? Why do we have to talk about this so much? And especially, why do we have to go back into the past Pour salt on on wounds and talk about past injustices. Hey, I'm not my great-great-great-great-grandfather, so don't don't, don't, don't hold me accountable or guilty for what they did. Let's just let bygones be bygones and move on from here. I understand the question. But see, here's the thing we've got to realize. If if I'm going to love my wife and understand my wife, I've got to know the history of my wife, right? I've got to know something about her past. It's at least the formative experiences of her past. Because who she is in the present is to a large degree a, a, a product uh, of her past. At least it's influenced by the p- past. And it is the same way when it, can, when it comes to racial relationships. Uh, when it comes to uh, different cultures, you need to understand some of the things that have gone into the past that have made those cultures what they are. And so we need to look at them, especially areas of injustice, to understand wounds so we can begin to move forward in healing. It's all well and good to say, let bygones be bygones, but, but uh, the reality of the situation is that until you understand some of the hard facts of history, uh, you'll never make significant progress. I, ten years ago, the Lord, eight years ago, the Lord la- laid on me in an intense way this uh, mandate to move forward in this area on racial reconciliation, and just all of a sudden I noticed something in Scripture I'd never noticed before, how central this is how central racial reconciliation is in the body of Christ to God's purpose for the world. And I had a do-or-die mandate on me. And I honestly thought at that time I was so naive that if you just announced it, hey, we love everybody, Uh, you know, we're we're for racial reconciliation, that it would just sort of happen. And it hasn't. What I know now that I didn't know then was that there's an invisible wall that I, like most white people, just don't see because I've never had to see it. And, and I didn't understand it because I didn't see it. And there's a whole lot of history I didn't know about. And until I understood that, I couldn't see what the, what, what the issues were, how, how, how thick the walls were, how, how deep the ditches were, and how difficult and formidable this task is. I am amazed, just amazed, overwhelmed actually, by how much I did not know, how much I didn't learn going through school, how, excuse the pun here, but how whitewashed my view of history was. 
Uh, you know, it, it wasn't like I got it in second grade with the pilgrims came over to rescue the Native Americans from their, their own, you know, uh, wayward life. I actually thought that we did everyone a favor by coming over here. And, and I remember seeing the, the picture of Thanksgiving where we're all sitting down and, and you know, it's, it's, I thought when, when the Constitution said, you know, united we stand, divided we fall, we, we believe that all people are created equal and liberty and justice for all, that it meant it. But it didn't. I, I, I didn't know until recently that only 14% of the population actually were included in that phrase. White male landowners. Everybody else was not part of uh, liberty and justice for all. It's liberty and justice for white males. And it's been you know, 200 years of, of working out the implications of that. I'm glad it's in our Constitution, but we need to understand something. That America was, and, and we don't like to hear this, but it's true, it was founded as a racist nation. It literally was. Uh, and uh, the things that were done often in the name of Christianity to other people groups, non-white groups, were just atrocious. I just finished a book on uh, evangelism that took place among the Native Americans. It's a very scholarly book. But it's at times moved me to tears as I read about how some of the missionaries, with they weren't mean-spirited people. They were just racist. They just believed that white people had the superior race, the superior in- intellect. And uh, therefore, many of the things they did, in-, in principle, enslaved, oppressed, and then sometimes moved towards exterminating the people that they were supposed to be evangelizing. And they did in the name of Christianity. The treaties we broke with the Native Americans, it's just even up into the last century, uh, the treaties we broke, the promises we made that, but, but did not keep, the things that we did exploited them and whatnot. It's, to me, a miracle that any Native American is willing to even entertain the possibility that Christianity is true uh, after the way the church has represented itself. Honestly, it's that bad. But it's just as bad, maybe even worse, in terms of what white folks did to black folks, uh, enslaving them, oppressing them, many times massacring them over hundreds of years, building an, an economic empire on the blood of their backs, it is something that, that is gross. And we don't say that to like wallow in white liberal guilt. That's not the point of it. But the point of it is being real and understanding things. You see, and, and, and until we understand the different experiences of the people groups, we'll never understand the different perceptions we have about the way the world runs right now. After the Civil War, it was supposed to be, uh, you know, that, that was supposed to be done with. But as a matter of fact, it wasn't at all done with. Some of the most sinister things... Uh, some of the most racist things were done after the Civil War. Here's a fact I, I, that I had never known before. Uh, a friend of mine discovered this. We've been doing research on this. Did you know that right after the Civil War, uh, there were, it's represented by the red line there, there were over 300, uh, within five years, 300 black legislators in southern states. Uh, I, I always thought that we've kind of been making gradual progress uh, ever since the Civil War. But as a matter of fact, right after the Civil War, with the Reconstructionist movement, an incredible amount of progress was made. Uh, blacks entered the, the, the society, got into political offices, education was, was, was going in the right direction. It was really happening fast. But the powers that be, the white powers that be, didn't like what was happening. And so there was very quickly uh, a number of moves that were made to take power away from blacks. 
For example, they would redraw political lines to minimize the black vote. They came up with a number of ad hoc rules that virtually took away the rights of, of blacks to vote. For example, they came up with a law that unless you can read, you can't vote, knowing that the majority of slaves couldn't read. And so they took away the black vote, took away the black power, so that uh, while we had over three, almost 350 black legislators in southern states in, in, by 1870, by 1877 it was down to 50, and by 1900 it was down to zero. And it stayed that way until 1964 in the southern states with the Civil Rights Movement. If you put the chart back up, the blue line there represents uh, the number of black legislators after the Civil Rights Movement. And we're, we're, we're still not, look at this, we are still not to the point where we were in the southern states uh, in 1870. Now see, if you understand that, that this, this incredible, uh, sinister, racist way of keeping blacks disempowered, you begin to understand the different perceptions, for example, to give one example, of how blacks and whites tend to view the law. Is the law just you know, fair and, and equally distributed in, in, in everybody's interest? Well, given the history, you can understand why there's such a big difference. You can understand, for example, why uh, the majority of blacks thought that O.J. Simpson was innocent, or at least might be innocent, whereas the majority of whites thought for sure that he was guilty. Uh, is that just about people wanting to defend their own? Whites want to defend Mark Furman and blacks want to defend O.J. Simpson? No. It's about fundamental different experiences, historically and personally, that feed into your perception of, 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 of the world around you. Now see, the Lord has called us. It's in the Word of God all over the place. A central motif that runs throughout the, the, the Word. That God, is, God wants the people groups united under His Lordship. This isn't a peripheral thing, though I always thought it was up until about 8 to 10 years ago. It's a central thing. God's goal for the world is for humanity to reflect uh, the triune God. John 17 sums it up so beautifully. He wants humanity to be one, even as, 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 he, as, as Jesus the Father and the Spirit are one. And that's a central motif. Israel was raised up as a distinct nation, as a way of, of, of reaching the entire world. God's goal has always been for the entire world. Read Isaiah 55. When the Lord says, my ways are not your ways, uh, what, what he's specifically referring to there is this. You tend to be racist, I'm not. You read the context in Isaiah 55. He says, I'm calling nations that you don't even uh, know about. You're going to serve nations that you've never heard of. I'm going to use you to bring them to Mount Zion, that all may worship as one the Lord God. It's a central motif of, of, of Scripture. It gets even more intense in the New Testament where, the, where, where, where the, the Lord tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that in the body of Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, he's torn down the walls of hostility that separated the Jews and the Gentiles, which were the quintessential expression of hostility between people groups, between ethnic groups. God's goal is for the church to lead the charge on racial reconciliation and to do it in Jesus' name. I appreciate the fact that Curtis brought up that this isn't something that's going to happen through some legislation and through some laws. Thank God for good laws and thank God for good legislation. But legislation and good laws don't touch the human heart. Uh, they, they, they don't uh, uh, bring about a fundamental change of perceptions. What's really happened since the Civil Rights Movement is we've had some good laws that are passed, but some of the racist sentiment that's been there for hundreds of years that are part of the social structure of our society have gone just beneath the surface. And once in a while with the Rodney King incident or whatnot, they'll pop out, but they are there. And God calls the church as a central thing to swim upstream against that, to tear down the walls and to build bridges between the people groups and to begin to manifest the outrageous love of Jesus Christ to all people at all times and all places. We've got to lead the charge on it. 
The sad truth is that the church has on the whole been one of the strongest forcing, forces resisting this movement. It's a sad, our track record on this just absolutely stinks. And it's got to change. It's got to change. It's not easy. I, I always thought it was just, come on, you know, let's all get along. You know, can't we let bygones be bygones? But see, it, it's not easy. In fact, uh, all the studies will tell you that one of the best ways to keep a church from growing is to move towards diversity. Do you know that? They, they've shown that the churches that grow the fastest and grow the quickest and get the biggest are the ones that, that, that are intentional about being homogeneous. You know, uh, to having a, a, a single people group because people, grew, people like to worship with people that are like themselves and have the same styles as themselves and have the same culture as themselves and talk the same language as themselves. And that's just the way people like it. So cater to that if you want to build a big church. You know, and, and, and studies show that in particular that when white people aren't, aren't a significant majority, they begin to develop fear. When, 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 there's, uh, when they're less than 70% of a majority, they begin to leave. They, 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 and that's just part of a cultural background that we've got. 86% of all white folks live in suburbs that are less than 1% diverse. They like to see people that look like them, talk like them, and that's just kind of the way it is. So if you're going to move in this direction, you're going to have white people leave. And so one might ask the question, well, why would you do that? Why would you do that? You know, why bother with this? Aren't there other issues you could kind of like hang your hat on? Why, why, why would you, you know... Uh, do something that you intentionally know is not going to promote church growth. It's, it's maybe it's even going to hurt. You're going to be ticking people off, and there's so much education that needs to be done. And, and, you know, why do that? And you can answer that question on a lot of different levels, a moral level. It's the morally right thing to do. It's the spiritually right thing to do. But the most fundamental answer, and now I'm starting to back into my sermon, <laughs> the most fundamental is, answer is that we don't have a choice on this. We do not have a choice on this. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 it's not like God saying, hey, you know, if you ever think about it, we get around to it. Why don't you try it? No, see, this comes to us as a mandate. It comes to us as a mandate from the Word of God, and it comes to us as a mandate uh, in the Spirit of God. God never called Woodland Hills or any church to get big. Where is that in the Bible? God calls us to be faithful. God doesn't call us to be popular. He calls us to be faithful. Doesn't call us to do the easy thing. He calls us to be faithful. Doesn't call us to have convenient Christianity. He doesn't call us to be sensitive to people's, you know, jaded perspectives of the world. He calls us to be faithful. And as a matter of fact, if God says to reverse Babel, and he does, we've got no choice but to strive to reverse Babel. If God says be ambassadors of racial reconciliation, and in 2 Corinthians he does just that, then we've got no choice. It's not an option. We've got to be ambassadors of racial reconciliation. If God says embrace the Samaritan that you've been historically estranged from as your neighbor, we've got to embrace the Samaritan that we've been historically estranged from as our neighbor. We don't have a choice here. It's not like he's giving us an option. If God says swim upstream in the culture, we swim upstream in the culture. If God says go the hard way, then we go the hard way. There's no options about it. And now I'm talking about discipleship. What is it to be a disciple? It is to put the word of God, the command of God, the leading of Jesus Christ, first and foremost at your, in your life at all costs, whatever the price, whatever the hassle, whatever the grievance, whatever the people may say, you do it. If it makes you big, get big. If it makes you small, get small. But for all, whatever comes to pass, be faithful. Be faithful. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the issue. 
And now I'm in my sermon. I'll call this sermon, Be Faithful. After long, de- after long deliberation, because you're supposed to have titles for sermons, I deliberated about it for seven seconds. We're going to call this Be Faithful. Here's the thing. Old Faithful, we'll call it, because we got to get clever. See, here's the thing. We Americans don't like this message, do we? Well, some of you do, but probably most of you are like, can't get back to that love stuff that was a little weird. It's like, we, we don't like this. Uh, we don't like mandates. The flesh doesn't like mandates and orders anyways. We, we like to do it our way. But American flesh really doesn't like this. We, don't like, we like options. We like choices. We like the ball to be in our court and we get to decide. We like to, you know, it's, it have the options laid before us. Can I, can I go to the discipleship Christianity or the non-discipleship Christianity? You know, can, can we have a plan A and a plan B? And in a lot of areas, that's an appropriate thing to have. But when it comes to living as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's not an appropriate thing to have. See, we need to understand this. Uh, we are more so than any other people group on the planet conditioned to think we have rights to choose different options. It's part of the culture. Part of it's the democracy thing. A large part of it's the capitalistic thing. We have created, it's, a, it, it's not a bad thing, but we have created the strongest economy uh, on the planet uh, through capitalism. And that's a good thing. It, 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 it benefits a lot of people. But there's also a downside to it that we as Christians who don't have ultimate allegiance to anything other than Jesus Christ, we've got to be able to say out loud. Uh, capitalism runs, as Luther saw so very clearly, It's one of its main uh, principles that it runs on. The fuel that pushes it forward is greed. We make a vice into a virtue. You need to keep people always wanting more and more and more things for this thing to run. And fortunately, in a fallen world, or not really fortunately, but if you're an economist, it's fortunate, uh, that principle is very strong. It's not hard to teach people to be in perpetual want, and so that keeps the economy going in the right direction. It works economically, but we've got to see the spiritual downside of it. There's two things that being raised in a capitalistic culture do that we need to be aware of. Number one, it makes us addicted to choices. It makes us addicted to choices. Now, it feels like an empowering thing. I get to choose. But it becomes sort of an addiction where if we don't get to choose, if an order and a mandate is given to us, which is what discipleship is all about, it feels... It feels like our rights are being oppressed. It feels like like part of our selfhood is being denied. It doesn't feel like a loving thing. We're addicted to choices. The the market forces that are out there, they, they, they compete for our allegiance. And that gives us the consumer choices. I go to the store to buy some toothpaste because we're out of toothpaste. And it takes me a half hour because we got 10,000 different kinds of toothpaste. Do we need 10,000 different kinds of toothpaste? No, but everyone's got a right to vie for the market, to get the allegiance of the consumer. So, you know, this brand does this, and this brand does this, and this brand does that. And I don't know what brand we brush. I never notice what kind of... It's the kind where you squeeze and the white stuff comes out. That's what I... You know, and, and why do we have to have all these choices? You go to pick up some toilet paper. Do you know how many different kinds of toilet paper there are? It's like, how complicated can this be? But see, it's not about complicated. It's about everyone trying to sell their own brand, and our, our brand is softer, and our brand smells better, and our brand's pretty color, and our brand's got neon lights or something. I don't know, but it's, it's, there's choices. We like choices. We're used to choices. I decided finally to give up the, the manly way of shaving with the razor, you know, because I'm always cutting myself. Especially since I got this scar, I cut it all the time. So fine, I'm done with razors. I'm going to get one of the electric shavers. I've become technological. 
So I go to buy a shaver. Do you know how many different kinds of stupid shavers there are out there? You know, and and they all have different options. And you can, you know, I finally got the kind that you can actually shave your nose hair because I always have that problem. You know, but I'm glad for that option. But there's choices. You go to order. You go to order from a menu, and it takes a half hour because there's 14 different kinds of potatoes you can get, and you can have your steak this way or that way or the other way. And would you know? And choices. We like choices. We feel empowered to choices, but then we get addicted to choices. And so when something comes to us that's not a choice, that's a mandate, a thus says the Lord, we want to step back and say, well, what are our options here? But see, to walk as a holy, devoted follower of Jesus Christ means I give up the options, Lord. Your word's the final word. I follow you at all costs. I lay it all down. I lay it all down. We're addicted to choices. The second thing, though, is we're addicted to seeing the world in terms of what's in it for us. Uh, we're just culturally conditioned. Today, if you watch the Super Bowl, you will be bombarded by very funny and very interesting commercials. And they're the most entertaining thing about the whole two hours or three hours as far as I'm concerned. But all of them in one way or another. Here's your assignment for today. As you're watching the Super Bowl, be asking the question, uh, what is this commercial trying to do to me? And what it's trying to do to you is, if you're at all in the market target range of what they're going for, it's trying to tell you that your life is somewhat incomplete unless you have what they're offering. Uh, it, it, uh, it, you get conditioned to see the world, to walk in your awareness of how needy you are. And in fact, we're conditioned to experience things that maybe would be nice to have as though they were abs- a matter of, asp- uh, of absolute urgency for us. Uh, the capitalistic culture creates a people who live in the now of their neediness and have as one of their primary goals self-gratification and who experience the delay of gratification as though it was pain and as though it was a fundamental denial of our basic rights as human beings. So we're people who are always walking in this what's-in-it-for-me mindset. We become consumer machines, black holes that are, are, are addicted to acquiring new stuff. And we've got to get the best stuff, the newest brand, the best options, uh, the, the improved version of things. Uh, that's the mindset that we're, we're conditioned with. And you know what? It works economically. It works economically. Don't think that I'm an anti-American, anti-capitalist, socialist, communist, whatever it works economically, say that out loud, but we've got to know this, as kingdom people who don't have an ultimate allegiance to anything other than Jesus Christ, and who therefore can have a different kind of perspective about everything around us, we've got to know that in many respects, this, this mindset that capitalism forms is antichrist. It's absolutely a- antithetical to the gospel. Jesus said, if you, find your, if you seek to find your life, seek to acquire your life, you're going to lose it. Whereas if you just seek to lose your life, you're going to find it. That is absolutely antithetical to everything I just said about our economy, about our, 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 our culture, which tells us that you've got to seek to find your life, and here's life, buy our product. And if you don't find your life in this product, you're going to lose it. You're going to be missing out on something. Your life is going to be passing you by. You're not going to have all the sex that you're supposed to have. You're not going to have all the respect that you're supposed to have. Your life will be a little bit less comfortable, a little bit less pleasant, a little bit less uh, hip uh, with, with, with the culture if you don't buy our product. And it's absolutely the antithesis of what the gospel says. We need to be aware of that. There's an attempt to brainwash us into the consumer mindset. But it gets worse. If it could get worse. Because enter into this whole fray of capitalistic thinking, religion. And now what you get is a religion that is always going to be pulled by the cultural forces, by the market forces, to be like the culture. 
And what happens is, is when, when, the, a, when uh, religion uh, gets co-opted by the culture of the time, by the spirit of the time, it becomes one more capitalistic venture where the church becomes the dispenser of religious goods and people attending the church become the consumers of religious goods. And so they believe they have choices, they have options. This is why people church surf the way they channel surf, the way they, 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 they grocery store surf. Uh, they want their options. They want to specify it their way. Hold the pickles with extra lettuce and all of that. Um, and, and so you create a culture of religious consumers. And the church becomes like one big commercial where you got to sell everything. You know, discipleship, if you're looking for a reason why discipleship is largely absent in the church in America, and George Barna in the 90s showed that it was, uh, the answer is, is, I believe the most fundamental answer is just this. You create a culture of people who always want options, and where there are options, you can't have discipleship. You can't have sold-out people if they're always saying, well, what's in it for me? And they're surfing churches, and they're surfing options and whatnot to find just what's right for them, what hits their exact taste. And the church turns into one giant commercial. Friends, have I got a sermon for you today? Oh, yes. You know, uh, are you feeling a little bit lonely? Well, my Jesus can help you. You can have your own personal Jesus. Specify the Jesus with the qualities that you want him to have. And, 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 and you end up selling it like, like it's some kind of a car or something. You know, that's right. Eight steps to a better marriage and 14 steps to raising your kids just right. And, and, and this, you know, uh, God can be your own personal vending machine, folks. That's right. Today I have a sale for you. Well, Master and Visa card accepted. God can be your own personal vending machine. Why, well, you can have your own private Santa Claus. Just give him your wish. Be a good boy and girl, and he'll bless you over and over again. Your life can be a little bit more sweeter and a little bit more brighter and a little bit more lovely with Jesus in your life. Here's what Jesus can do for you. And so God turns into sort of this capitalistic genie that we rub, and he comes out of the bottle and says, what can I do for you today? And that's not quite what the gospel's all about. And to take it a step further, then the churches begin to compete for the capitalistic consumers, the way toothpaste companies compete for the capitalistic consumers. And so instead of working like a team and the army and the bride of Christ, we end up vying for the more consumers and trying to sell the, 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 the distinctness of, of your congregation I remember the, the, the one and only advertisement we ever sent out when we were going to be a, a Woodbury church plant, Woodland Hills Church, we were sending out this advertisement, the only advertisement we've ever done, sending it, you know, in terms of uh, resident mail. And uh, we had, a, I think a marketing company did this for us. I never saw it until it came out. But when it came out, it said something like, ah, I don't know, something like, come to Woodland Hills Church. Why? Uh, you know, we've got this, that, and the other thing. And then the, the, the caption was, experience the difference, uh, the difference that Woodland Hills makes. Now, if it was about the difference of Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus Christ can make a difference in your life, okay, you know, that's true. But this was about the difference of everything we just talked about on this mailing. Uh, our youth program is the best youth program, experience the difference. And our preaching is the best preaching. Experience the difference. Why, our music will be the best music. Come, experience the difference. Viva la difference. Our church has got the best product. That's right. Come here, folks. What's on sale, you can charge it today. You know, and it's like, yick, 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 yick. Yeah. It's probably why we haven't done an advertisement since then. I don't trust advertisements. You know, I just... Uh, I don't know if anything could be farther from the genuine gospel than that. Stuff. <laughs> I am so sanctified. 
Ah, the difference, huh? That's it, man. There's nothing wrong with feeling good about your church, but see, if you're getting life from that, you're bringing your consumerism into the wrong place. Jesus, look at how Jesus dealt with this stuff. Jesus, uh, I, I don't see one ounce of him ever worrying about that junk. It says in Luke 14, we read it earlier, let's read it again. Now large crowds were traveling with him. Large crowds. Woo! I can see his disciples you know, saying to him, Lord, you know what? The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but, but you don't even have a place to sleep. We could take up an offering now. It'd be kind of nice, you know, uh, we're a little short on food, a little short on supplies. We're run, running around the, 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 the galleon area without any place to stay. Uh, hey, listen, let's, let, let's capitalize on this a little bit here. You're, you're, the poles are up, you know, and things are going in the right direction. Uh, you know, the crowds are following you. You're on an upswing here. Uh, why don't you just give them a sermon that kind of spins it the right way? Let them experience the difference. Uh, you know, meet them where they're at. You just kind of don't offend people right now, okay? Let's just kind of draw them in here. We can take up an offering. We can build a big church. This is how we can change the world. I can just picture Jesus kind of winking at Peter saying, oh, okay. So he turns around and says here. <laughs> hey, everybody, gather up. I got a word for you. Whoever does not hate their mother and father, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciples. I can just picture Peter saying that wasn't quite what we had in mind. (laughs) And whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, when we think of crosses, we think of some kind of metal thing hanging around someone's neck that a rapper has flapping while he's doing his rap thing, but that's not what they would be thinking. They, when they think of the cross, they see this all the time. People are being executed by the Roman government in the most excruciating way possible, carrying that cross up the hill and, uh, you know, being whipped and mocked and scourged just like Jesus was. And now Jesus says, hey, here's my sales pitch, folks. If you do not carry your cross, if you're not willing to do that, you're not my disciple. And in case you're not quite getting the point, I'll say one more thing. Whoever, does, uh, whoever doesn't give up all their possessions, you can't be my disciple. What a sales pitch. What a church planter. What a, what a man, this guy could really sell. You know, he was, a, he was the quintessential marketer. I, love, I just love this about Jesus. Uh, you know, this isn't going to, you know, massage anyone's ears. This isn't uh, a real popular message that he's giving here. What he's saying here is this. Here's, I'm putting all my cards on the table. Here's, here's, here's what you're getting into. Are you ready to die? Here's what you're getting into. You're willing to give up all your possessions? Here's what you're getting into. You're willing to be persecuted? Here's what you're getting into. Are you willing to put me first above your wife, above your father, above your children, above life itself? And if you are, hey, keep on coming. Otherwise, you might want to really question whether you want to be following this thing. Not a, lot, a whole lot of strategizing then of how to get the most number of people the quickest and, and you know, having all the marketing principles that are going to just really show people uh, in their carnal mindset with the difference that your little congregation can make. This is a, 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 a master who is clearly interested in one thing. And it's not about building a big crowd and it's not about being popular and it's not about wowing the, the religious audience and it's not about uh, you know, showing what God can do for people like some kind of genie in a bottle. This is a, a master who is concerned with one thing and one thing only and that is being faithful. Are you faithful? Do you want to join a radical, radical, countercultural kingdom here that is very unlike any kingdom of this world? And it will cost you everything. But the irony is this, you'll also get everything. The odd thing is this, 
if you, if you die to the question, what's in it for me? What about me? What about my needs? What about my preferences? What about my way? If you can die to that, now you'll find what's really in it for you. Because <laughs> now you'll define what Jesus said, it's eternal life. This is what life really is. When you lose your life, you find it. It was out of absolute love. See, our flesh says, ooh, harsh message, harsh word, don't like this, what a run. But see, what Jesus is saying here is this. Hey, out of love, he's saying, get free from that. Get free from your addiction to self. Get free from your addiction to seeking to find life on your own. Get free from your addiction to defining terms, uh, you know, defining things on your own terms. Get free from your addiction to having options and, 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 and specifying it your way. Get free from, from seeking to find your life. Rather, commit to losing your life. And now I'll tell you this, you will find your life. You'll find your life in losing it. You'll find a different kind of life, radically different kind of life. A life that is abundant life, not the pathetic kind of uh, you know, life that you acquire here and there in little morsels going through this capitalistic culture. This is full life. This is free life. This is power life. This is God's life. But you, to get there, you've got to die to self. And that's what discipleship in the end is all about. It's not bad news. It's good news. And it's not the opposite of love. It's the, it's the absolute expression of love because it's synonymous with freedom. I sometimes read stuff like this in the Gospels, and you know what? I just am, I go, wow, you know what? What Jesus was about was far, 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 far more radical than, than most of us ever even begin to realize. It's like, oh, whoa, holy cow, I, we're, we're missing stuff here. And what I'm feeling as a matter of just urgency in my spirit, if you couldn't tell, uh, is, is the Lord's saying, okay, let's step up. Let's get radical. Let, 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 let's just not do the religious thing. Let, let's, 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 be the, let's, let's go the outrageous way. Uh, let's actually take these words seriously. And um, swim upstream on the consumer thing. Swim upstream on the racial thing. Swim upstream on everything that doesn't conform to the will of God. What do you say? What do you say? I, what do you say? Amen, amen, amen. So here's the question. I'll, I'll end with this. I'm going to end with this. Uh, two questions. Uh, one question is this. I want you to be asking yourself just as a way of beca- getting awareness. This isn't guilt or shame or anything motivated. This is this. What in your life is there only because you're a believer in Jesus Christ? And what in your life is absent only because you're a believer in Jesus Christ? What difference has Christ made in your life? Are there things that you do that you wouldn't do if, you didn't, if Jesus wasn't your Lord? And are there things that you don't do that you would do if Jesus Christ wasn't Lord? And... And see, that's a way of measuring the cost of discipleship. Ask yourself that question, and, and right behind it is this other question, and that is this, are you willing to die? Are you willing to sell out? Which leads to the second question that I want to ask here, and I want everyone to be praying now. Is there anybody here this morning that uh, you've never died to Jesus Christ? You've never accepted his death for you? You've never accepted forgiveness for, your, for, for sins? Uh, you've never committed your life to following him. And I'm not going to sell you anything. I've got nothing to sell. I'm just going to ask you the question, uh, do you want to die? Do you want to join a radical co- countercultural kingdom? I'm not going to give it a nice spin here. It's about dying to self and accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you want to do that here this morning, maybe you've never done that before, I want you to stand up right where you are. And I'm going to pray for you from up here. This is how we get, this is how we get entr- entrance into the kingdom of God. It's about boldly saying, I will follow you at all costs. If you want to do that, you've, you, 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 I'm laying all the cards on the table here, just stand up. Anybody here at all who's never done that, or maybe you did a long time ago and now you, you've kind of fallen back and you want to recommit your life, stand up right where you are. I'll take one minute to do this. 
Are you willing to be bold? In the early church, to follow Jesus meant you had to be willing to die. Here I'm just saying, are you willing to stand up and surrender your life to him? 30 seconds more as the Holy Spirit's uh, working in hearts. Anybody here at all want to do that? I'm fine. If everybody here is a disciple, brother, thank you. Anybody else? You're saying, you know what? I want to surrender. I'm tired of going my own way, doing my own thing. I know that I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I want to surrender the reins to Jesus Christ. Another brother over there. Praise God. Amen. Anybody else? Back there. Praise God. Got three, four people here. Wonderful, wonderful. Amen. Over there. Holy Spirit, keep on moving. Holy Spirit, keep on moving. Another person back there. Okay, so being bold, saying, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow him. I'm done doing church. Maybe you've been a church, church addict all your life. I'm not talking about church. I'm not talking about religion. I'm, I'm just talking about being a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. This may cost you everything. And you've got to be willing to say that. But I'm here to tell you that it's worth it. It's really the only life there is. Okay, those who are standing, I, I, you know, I, I would like to ask those around you, if you would. I, you probably don't know each other, but would, 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 could, could, could they just stand up alongside of you and, and kind of pray for you? And uh, I, we're all going to pray here together. I want you to repeat these words after me. And don't make these, pray these words out of your heart like a wedding vow. They're simple, straightforward, but they make an eternity of a difference. Let's all pray this together. Heavenly Father, you are Lord. You are God. You are King. You are Creator. You are the rightful owner of my life. But I confess that I have not lived acknowledging that. I've gone my own way. I've done my own thing. I have sinned against you. But I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, to come into my life. Forgive me. Wash me. Live in me. And empower me to live for you with every ounce of my being from this day forward. Amen. Amen. I want to pray for those who are standing. Holy Spirit, seal this commitment. Holy Spirit, seal this commitment in their hearts. Uh, Lord, we pray protection from the enemy who wants to come and steal this. Even today, he's outraged by this. So Holy Spirit, seal this commitment in their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome to the kingdom. Amen. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And if I could... Those of you who made that commitment, I would like to, the first step in following through on that commitment would be to come up here. This lady over here has some free information she'd like to share with you to get you started on the Christian walk. And it's very important that you do that. So I encourage you to take one minute, come up here and get that information. If the prayer team would come forward, I open up the altar for any who want to uh, spend some time praying uh, and whatever the issue may be. Otherwise, let's go out of here as radical, sold-out disciples of Jesus Christ who, whose goal is to glorify God in all things. Amen.